two wonders I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. But at the cross, take your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we have an opportunity to study this section of the moral law of God. Um, After the sermon, we get a chance to hear from Will and Chris. They just got back from Quebec, Canada, visiting with Quentin Bernard, so we look forward to that. Let's set our attention in Exodus chapter 20. Let's look at these first 11 verses of the chapter. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness, or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them, for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work you or your sons or your daughters your male servant or female servant your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates for In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. We trust that it will not return to us void, but will bear fruit where it is proclaimed. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Today we start this little series on these 10 commands from Exodus 20. We study these commands even though we're not, most of us, Hebrew. And even though we don't necessarily operate inside the confines of a legal structure with God, we are people who live in the new covenant. A covenant in Christ's blood. We are under this covenant in a totally new way a way in which God's laws are not carried in our weak hands like heavy stone tablets. But we operate, according to this law, in a new way, the law written on our hearts. This is the nature of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This means that we study this law from a heart that delights in God. As Christians, we say with Paul in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I was thinking about the difference between honoring the law as a stranger and honoring the law as a child. I was thinking about this week, and I don't know where I was driving, but I had this nostalgic memory. 
Can you recall when you were a child and you would go to a friend's home? Maybe it was an overnight or maybe it was a meal. And they had some house rules. And those house rules were sometimes intimidating. You didn't want to violate the house rule as a guest, but you didn't know what they all were. And so you lived with this certain like discomfort of, am I going to upset my friend's parents, which is a scary thing. And you would go to that other house, and inevitably you would walk in some fear of breaking the house rule. But in your house, eventually you came to realize that the house rules were good for you. You didn't always like them. You sometimes complained about them. But deep down, you knew these are good rules. They're good rules that have come to me from good and benevolent parents. Outside of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, these house rules are scary. They represent a real threat of danger. But inside the family, inside the covenant with Jesus Christ, these rules represent wise, fatherly shepherding of our good God. They are a delight to our soul. I've titled this section, Love God. The next section will be Love Your Neighbor. Jesus broke the moral law into those two parts. Love God, love your neighbor. He reduced it from 613 to 10 to 2. And it's true. Love God looks like this. So we've already noted that God redeemed these people because he remembered his covenant with them. If you wanted to, you could go back to Exodus 2.24. God says, I'm here because I promised to not forget you. We also notice that he gives them this law so that they will keep his covenant with them. Chapter 19, verse 5. Here's the question. If we're to say we operate in this relationship of grace, it's a covenant relationship, then what is the place for the law in our relationship with God? Well, first, the law reveals the nature of the God of our covenant relationship. He's holy. He's majestic. He's just. He's sovereign. Second, the law defines who the people of the covenant are. The regulations he lays out for living are those regulations that are received joyfully by his people. Third, the law defines the area where God's people experience his blessing. So, the law God gives Israel are not all the same. This section is one that's called the moral law. There's two other sections. One is called the ceremonial law. One's called the judicial law. This one's called the moral law. Live like this. It's immediately clear that these ten words are capable of governing all of our life. We could live our entire life by these ten words and do so faithfully in Christ. They guide religious life. They guide personal and social life. In summary, they tell us how we ought to live in our relationship with God and how we ought to live 
in our relationship with each other. The order of them is important. It's not coincidental that the laws begin with, this is how you relate to God, because what follows is, and this is how you relate to his image bearers. The order is imperative. True morality flows out of reverence for God. I, I, I want you to lose hope in any sense of goodness that doesn't start with reverence. I do want you to lose hope in that. I don't want you to have some sort of self-righteous, I can do relationship and morality and conduct and not necessarily have to operate in a reverence before God. The order of these commands are vital. All that's going to follow for his people starts with beholding God. You have heard me say um, numerous times. Let me rephrase that. I have said numerous times. I'm not sure how much the other part is true. I have said numerous times. The call of God to the creatures of the dirt is not a call to behave. It is first a call to behold. That's the nature of new covenant law keeping. Behold your God. Delight in his law, in your innermost being. So here's, here's how I'm going to break this out. Um, four commands with one statement above them. One overarching statement is this. Covenant life is complete loving loyalty to the one true God. Covenant life is complete loving that's important that that word comes before the word loyalty. Covenant life is complete loving loyalty to the one true God. Okay. That statement is one of the laws or one of the words. And then there are four supporting laws to that one. And, and I'm, I want to go through those this morning. So, covenant life is complete loving loyalty to the one true God. The first statement is foundational to that. It's in verse 3. The command from God is that there be no other gods other than Yahweh. No other gods before me or other than me. You must have no other gods literally over against me. Imperative introduction to the moral law. This must start here. He begins by explaining the law givers exclusive authority. There's a CNN article that cites a, 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 a publicity stunt that was done by some authors. They were, they were uh, atheists and they were writing a book basically about how you can be good on your own. And so one of the things they did to, to bring publicity to the work was they invited people from all over the world to submit their non-commandment Ten Commandments. So how would godless people draft ten moral guiding statements? And so they, they do, as you can imagine, like 
leave the earth better than it was when you found it. You know, those are important things. And, and they treat people the way you want to be treated. And they had these really nice suggestions, the golden rule. However, the ninth one, by the way, there were 2,800 submitted 10 non-command commands. The ninth command of, of, of compiling them all together, the ninth command in the non-theistic Ten Commands says there is no one absolute right way to live. That one command means the other ones are garbage. Because, because everything you just commanded people to do, you just stated. Now don't, don't treat any of these things like they're necessarily true. And so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. However, this text says God is a jealous God. He must be singular in devotion. His laws are all to be kept because He is the absolute standard for His creation. The command that we read here in verse 3 eliminates the possibility of polytheism. So I, I, wanna, I, really, wanna, I really want you to see this. Israel's operating in a world of polytheism. A bunch of gods. Everyone take the one that feels best to you. Maybe take a myriad of them, a little collection of them, and, and, and they'll do different things for different times in your life, and you can have all these little gods. Which is sad. Even some people who claim to be monotheistic treat certain other, maybe lesser saints, venerated saints, as like you're selling your house, you need this little saint, and you're, you're starting a new job, you need this saint and you're sick, you need this. And so it's kind of this, this pseudo-polytheistic view of God, like, like a bunch of poly, a bunch of. Israel operates in this culture. There's a bunch of gods. And this text absolutely guards them from that polytheism. So calls them to a monotheism. Like there will just be one. Not poly, but mono. But it does more than that. It guards them from what's called henotheism. Henotheism. Uh, henotheism would be this. It's subtle, and it's, it's rejected in verse 3. Henotheism says, this God is a better God than all the other gods. Not poly, not a bunch, but one above the rest. This first word, this command, says what 1 Corinthians 8 says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols or other gods, we know that an idol doesn't truly exist. There is no God but one. So that's henotheism rejected. God Yahweh is the best God among a bunch of gods. And the Bible says that's not at all the way this works. God is the only God. Any other God that would be admired is a God of your imagination. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven, Paul goes on to write in Corinthians, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. The first thing that we have here 
is God declaring himself as singular in confession in existence. Now, let's see how that singular statement guides. I told you last week that the law guides and it guards and it mirrors. Let's see how this part of the moral law does those three things. The first thing it does is it guides us. If we are to see that there are actually no other gods, but he alone is God, then it guides us to abstain from the foolishness of idolatry. Verses 4 through 6. So this word, this command from God, absolutely outlaws any form of idolatry. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath, that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation, those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep commandments. Be careful. Go in this path of worshiping God alone and not down this treacherous, futile path of idol worship. The nature of idolatry is really misunderstood, especially to us. The attraction of idolatry is powerful, and I'm going to give you six reasons why the attraction of idolatry is powerful. Now, keep in mind, first of all, that when we talk about idol worship, he's warning us against those things that symbolize, those things that symbolize the idol of our heart. He doesn't say, don't worship Baal. He says, don't make proof of your idolatrous heart by the way you decor. Quick word of warning. I don't suspect that anyone in the room is guilty of this. We had elder meeting Thursday morning, and I said, hey guys, do you think it's helpful for me to bring up at least the warning that we might be accidentally guilty of displaying an image maybe we shouldn't and we had some conversation like you don't need to preach about that's a bad thing but yeah I think we could mention it as a warning it's directly behind me in the very center of the room illuminated in red and Christians would look at it and go what? graven image? but if a first century Christian walked in the room they would say why do you put that prominently at the very center of your gathering? Well, I don't think we do it idolatrously. But let's guard ourselves that the cross doesn't become something other than Jesus. It's Jesus, not the, the structure, right? So that, that's the warning. The warning, friends, I, I want so badly for you to hear this. The warning is not... Don't worship the Asherah. Don't worship Baal. The warning is don't insist on decor that in fact expresses your idle heart. I want you to hear that. 
Here are six reasons why idolatry is such a great risk. And we need this word from God to guide us. First of all, idolatry represents a certain form of guarantee. It's a guarantee. The ancients assumed that the presence of a god or goddess was present in whatever that symbol was. So if I brought a statue up here and it was, it was the, the goddess Asherah, and I brought this up, they would say, everyone in the room would say, oh, Asherah is with us. So it's tempting because it seems to give us this security. Definitely, our deity is here. Now take away all the images. Is our God here? So idolatry becomes alluring. The second thing is idolatry is completely selfish. The one thing false gods couldn't do is feed themselves. <laughs> There's, I mean, it's so easy to poke fun at stupid idolatry, right? But you've got a God who you adore and trust in, but he just can't sustain his existence because he can't find food. Like, you need different gods. It's selfish because the hold that the worshiper had over the god was that they were dependent. That god was dependent on the worshiper. The worshiper brought a bushel, a basket of grains or meats. You need me. That is one allure in idolatry. Because you need me, I'm going to put this sacrifice down here at the base of your altar, and then I'm going to tell you what you do next. That's idolatry. That is not Christianity. That's idolatry. You need me. I brought this. Do my bidding. Third, it's, a, it's appealing because it's easy. Idolatry said, bring stuff and don't worry about everything else. Idolatry never said, now when you leave here, guide yourself by an, a, a, an honoring moral code. Idolatry just said, bring the stuff, leave it here, and then go do whatever you got to do. It's appealing because it's normal. Everyone around them was doing it. It was the common way of religion without exception. It seems appealing because it seems logical. Multiple God. The idea that there would be one God who would do everything seemed illogical. So they had multiple gods. They had gods of individual. They had gods of family. They had gods of national worship. They believed in these three categories. I want to I say this here. And I hope that you'll hear it because I think maybe there's a misunderstanding about the way Israel came to participate in idol worship. Here it is. If we were to ask an Israelite, do you believe in Yahweh? They would say, of course. But most of the time in Israel's history, they sadly saw Yahweh as only the national God. Their greater day-to-day -day loyalty and worship would be directed toward various idols representing various categories of gods. The God of harvest, the God of reproduction, the God of relationships, the God of wealth. So they would say, yes, Israel is the God of our people. And it's a Tuesday, so I need the God of this. 
That makes it appealing. Oh, sixth. Listen close. I'll try to speak plainly. One of the appeals of pagan or, or um, false god worship is that it is erotic. It is erotic. This is a reality that I don't intend to skip, but I intend to say simply. Temple prostitution is a common place described at various points throughout the Old Testament and New. Behind temple prostitution lays the notion that all creation is in fact procreation. So any blessing that you want has to be birthed by the gods. Combine that with what is called sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic. That means this. That if the gods see something done in one place, it is probable that it would also be done in another place. So take, for example, the pagan worship of temple prostitution. If the gods Baal and Astra see two people engaging in sexual activity from heaven, they are more inclined to engage in sexual activity in the heavens and give the birth of whatever thing you were asking for. Okay? So... Idol worship is erotic and therefore becomes very appealing, especially to the godless people of the day. Sadly, that same thing is practiced in Jerusalem at the temple. Josiah, the young king in 2 Kings 23, calls special attention to eradicating it. And the northern people of Israel, Amos, notes their fathers and sons going together every day to the temple to engage in temple prostitution. There are reasons why idolatry to us in this moment, we can get cynical and we can say, this is crazy. But friend, would you realize how appealing it is on too many levels? And be guided by the command of God that says no other images of what your heart idolizes. In verses 5 and 6, this section of the command reminds us that God is jealous and punishes. Now, I want to, I want to say something quickly and move on. The Bible says here that God punishes the idol worshiper to the third and fourth generation. Now, that doesn't mean, friends, that God's going to take this horrific sin and be so angry about it that he's going to punish the innocent. These are not innocent. Instead, the warning is that an idolatrous parent often produces an idolatrous child and an idolatrous grandchild. Just breathe that in. I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the... I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the... Truth. Thank you. Truth. No greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. Practice idolatry and Kevin DeYoung says you will shoot yourself in the foot your children in the leg and your grandchildren in the heart in his book Whole in Your Holiness God isn't punishing the innocent third and fourth generation God is warning this generation your participation in idol worship will poison to the third and fourth generation. 
By contrast, there's this beautiful statement in verse 6. By contrast, look at what God says. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is the nature of the commandments. There's a warning for breaking them, but the very essence of the God who gives them is love. He lovingly says, don't give yourself over to the death of idolatry. I love you thousands keeping my commands. So the first thing God does in this, in this portion of love God is he guides us. He guides us. Stay in this path. Don't wander over here into idol worship. Stay in this path. The second thing God does is he guards us. Look at this command. The way we speak Yahweh's name must be respectfully and honest. This command, like the second one, gives a prohibition followed by a threat. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I want to ask this question right now. Do you know what it is to take God's name in vain? Some people might have said, no, I don't know what it means. Some people might have said, yes, I know exactly what it means. Some people might have thought, yes, I know exactly what it means, but might not totally know what it means. I think two questions have to be asked here. What exactly is involved in taking God's name in vain? Why is his name so important that protecting it becomes one of these ten foundational commands to Israel? The primary means of misusing the Lord's name, or literally, it means don't take the name of the Lord in vain. It means to raise up Yahweh's name for no good. To raise up Yahweh's name for no good. So I would say the primary means of taking the Lord's name in vain would look like these three things. First, to make light of it. To make light of it. To, to raise it up in a way that's of no purpose. Like you're sitting down and you're eating pie and you say to your friends, God, this is good pie. That sentence is fine without the first word. You raise that name up for no good reason. No good reason. But Christian, I'm appalled how often that happens in the life of God's people. That's appalling to me. I'm pastorally warning you, eliminate that vocabulary. I'm just telling you, don't do it. You say, well, pastor, that sounds legalistic. Here's what I'm telling you. The issues of your heart come out of your mouth. You want to think about God flippantly? you'll say things like his name regarding the good pie. I'm, I'm asking you to adjust a heart worship that will affect vocabulary. I'm not calling you to legalism, like all those bad words, good words, bad words. Heart, mouth connection. Secondly, it is speaking about Yahweh in a way that's disrespectful. Pastor Will and I were talking this week about discipleship and I can't remember the way you worded it. We were discussing something, and you said, that's cringy, maybe? Maybe that's the way you worded it. That is really cringy. There, there are things that we hear people say about God, and we just kind of, ooh. Like, for example, I, I don't know if I've ever heard this, but somebody going, hey, God, what's up, dude? It's cool we can hang out for a bit. Like, 
<laughs> Cringy, that's what it means. To speak of Yahweh in a way that doesn't revere Him. And the last one, this is the one you might not know about because we live in this culture that does this, that does this one a lot. It's to use the name Yahweh in order to appear to be orthodox. Okay? So, uh, <laughs> okay, ready? It's when, it's when a football player passes out on the football field, his heart stops. And a bunch of non-worshippers call on the name of God. Now listen, I have no problem with that being an instinct of even the unredeemed, but I do have a problem with us assuming, oh, they were secretly redeemed. No, they weren't. They used the name of God to look orthodox. They weren't in fact orthodox. They weren't in fact believers. So that's the third way we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We say the name God, very trivial things. We speak to or of God in a way that's flippant and careless. And then we use it like you're at work and you've got this neighbor you've been witnessing or this coworker you've been witnessing to. And then you say, sadly, I just found out my parent has terminal cancer. And they say, oh, I will pray for you. You what? You'll take the name of my God in vain? Okay, so I just want to say, that's where, how many of you know what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Some of you go, I don't know what it means. Some of you go, yes, I know exactly what it means. It means to say, God, this pie is good. And then some of you just now heard me say, your coworker saying, I'll pray for you, is one of the ways people take God's name in vain. People who don't know God. They have no fellowship with God. They have no access to God in Christ. Yahweh's name signifies his essence and it is to be revered or else there is a punishment. God not only guides us away from idol worship, God guards us from the punishment of being irreverent about him. And then the last one, God mirrors. In this law, verses 8 through 11, we are told to observe the Sabbath in a holy way because it is the sign of the covenant God has with his people. It mirrors. So in verses 8 through 11, this is the longest one. It gets the most words. I, I don't think it's at all because it's the most significant. I think it's because it requires the most practical descriptions. It's the function. So it takes more words. So this word or this command is the longest, though not the most significant, but there's a tension here, a balance between stopping and keeping. And we're stuck in this stop but keep in this command. The purpose of the Sabbath cannot be limited to a break from work one day or to the setting aside of one day for special attention to godliness. It can't be limited to just, there's a day where I don't do things. It also can't be limited just to, there's a day I go to church. To think of the Sabbath exclusively in one of those two categories is to be wrong. There's a day I rest. That's it. Or there's a day I go to church. And that's it. Would be wrong. So, these ancient covenants 
like this one that God has with his people. He makes this treaty, right? He is, he is the champion of their deliverance from Egypt. He makes this treaty with them. Here are the signs of the treaty. Something visible. This is the first one that's visible. Something visible that would remind people of the covenant so they don't forget. Sabbath functions as a sign of the Mosaic covenant. Turn your Bibles ahead to 31, Exodus 31. I think this is really important to our understanding. And verse 13. Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. Go down to verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath is a mirror that displays our covenant relationship with God. Sabbath-keeping matters. Sabbath-keeping is a gift from God that reflects back to us our regular weekly reminder that we are a covenant people. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'll stop there so I can save that for later. It's easy to forget that you are a promised, adopted child of the eternal King of Kings. And then church comes together and participates a Sabbath worship of Christ and we're reminded that's right we are his covenant people the new city catechism says this what does God require in the fourth command this one that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God Rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and each other, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Let me go quickly through Sabbath keeping. I think that you all have a functioning practice, but I, I wonder how many of you know why. And so I'd like to park on this point, but I'm going to move quickly. And I hope that it provokes conversation. Because I'm not going to exhaust this topic. It's going to be open for discussion by the time I spend the next five minutes. But I hope it opens discussion. You can have it with each other. You can have it with elders. You can have it with myself. I hope this provokes conversation. Let's look first. We're going to go Old Testament, Gospels, Epistles. That's what we're going to do. And we're only going to pick one. There's dozens. We have time for one in each. Old Testament, Sabbath, Genesis 2. The principle of Sabbath does not begin with Moses. It begins with creation. Genesis 2.2. 2. 
On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day. Now, we're in Genesis 2. I don't want you to accidentally mistake. The seventh day is Saturday. Today's the first day of the week. The seventh day was yesterday. Not far from my house, there was a church that met yesterday because they thought they had to. Because that was the Sabbath. Genesis 2. Okay? Let's take another step in this progressive revelation of Scripture and let's go into the Gospels in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 says this in verse 27. And he said to them, so uh, let me give you context quick. The, uh, the disciples of Christ are walking through a field on Saturday and they're plucking um, uh, grain. And some people see them, some law keepers, fence builders. They're fence builders, right? They build fences around fences around fences. And they're like, oh, you have somehow wandered into one of the layers of fences and your disciples are guilty. And Jesus is going to confront that. He's going to say, no, no, no. You have no comprehension of the Sabbath command. He says this. Mark 2.27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What that means, Christian, brother or sister, Christ follower, God gave you a good thing. Not God gave his law you. I think that's formative, and I want, I want you to hear it again. Jesus says, The commands are for God's people. Not God's people for the commands. That's, to a child, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want to illustrate. I'm going to keep going. He goes on to say this. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he says, first, you don't understand. The law is a gift from God that is good for his people. Not the other way around. And then he says, and by the way, as long as we're talking about Sabbath, I'm just going to set this here and you can think about it. I am the Sabbath, Jesus says. And he does just set it there. And Paul picks it up. In the epistles, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this warning. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food or drink, or with regard to festivals or new moons or a sabbath so he says don't let people presume that your annual monthly or weekly schedule indicates spirituality your annual monthly or weekly schedule aren't indications of spirituality he says because those verse 17 are shadows of things to come the substance of the shadow is Jesus. It's Jesus. God says, work and then rest. Practically, work. Work. I want to warn you about two dangers of our culture. One is retirement mentality that includes no responsibilities. Be careful. Don't waste your life. The second is this principle of five days of work and then two days of Sabbath. Not here. 
Okay? It's okay to have six days of working. Maybe maybe one is or five are vocational, and maybe one is domestic, but then a day that's restful. Christ says the rest commanded is for your good and not the other way around. And then this epistle makes it clear that Christ is the rest that we all need. B.B. Warfield said it this way. Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morning. The Puritans, you know, the number seven is often described as a number of perfection or completion. The Puritans called Sunday the eighth day of creation. It was the full with Sabbath plus because it was about Christ. Church fathers have often written that way, referring to the Sabbath as a plus one or the eighth day. And I want to say this, I want to say this to anyone in the room who is striving. You're striving. I'm preaching the law and you're like, okay, self, do that and do that and do that and do that. I can do it. And I want to say to you, you can't. And there will be no Sabbath in your trying. You will work tirelessly by the sweat of your brow because that is our curse. And I want to announce, I want to announce to you, I want to proclaim that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor, I will give you rest. He is our Sabbath. And so it is it is reasonable that we got together this morning to celebrate that our rest has already conquered sin and the grave. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who we rest in has won the victory. He is our Sabbath. The principle of Genesis about you needing to be intentional to take care of yourself is a good reminder every week, friend, you should Sabbath somehow. I believe there's probably more to come from the church about suggestions on how you practically could apply Sabbath to your family. Every week, when you humbly confess, I have to sit down because I am too weak to keep going on my own. You say to your soul, every week when you Sabbath somehow and you sit down, I need to sit. Because soul, you need something else. You are inadequate to keep going. You proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself when you rest. So what does all of this have to do with the church? 1 Peter 2, 9. I want to read this to you. And I want, I want you to understand that this is, what, this is what's commanded to the church regarding the people of God and His instruction. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're even a holy nation. A people for His possession that you might proclaim verbally and in law-keeping function the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once, you weren't a people at all. 
but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you then as you walk like a pilgrim and an exile, abstain from the passion of your flesh, which wars against your soul, and live with a conduct among the unredeemed so that when they try to speak against you as an evildoer, that's a liar. It's a murderer. It's a thief. That's a blasphemer. When they try to levy those charges against the people of God, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of his appearing. That's the place of the law for the people of God. This section of Scripture says, love God. Love God. As I close, Mount Sinai. God thunders. Mountain turns to smoke. Fire descends from heaven in billows. Lightning flashes. And God says, No God over against me. And we could accidentally come to the end of our notes and go, Yep, no God. And then someone says, But aren't you Trinitarian? Oh, yeah. That's right. And here's what I want to leave you with today. At Mount Sinai, God said, There is no God over against me. At the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The law and the prophets proclaim that right worship of God is worship of Jesus Christ. There is no God other than him. And Christ Jesus is his perfect image likeness. Co-equal, co-eternal, glorious God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we've heard your word and your command, I pray that we would receive it like children. Lord, Lord, uh, would your Holy Spirit work in us so that uh, we would know if we hear this word and we bristle and we push back on it, we resent it. It's because we're not your children. But if we hear the word of your mouth and we treat it like words for living, we delight in it in our innermost being, Thank you for the evidence that that speaks to us of our place in your family. As we think about living in it, guide us in these two things. That our part in law honoring would only be Christ honoring. And then that our part in law keeping would not be for eye service as men pleasers, like people seeing how good I am and thinking highly of me, but they would glorify my Father who's in heaven. So guide us in those two things as we delight in your law. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and we'll sing before Chris and Will come.